We have to reach deeper, go to the soil, and it's not always a present process. We have to face a lot of unpleasant truths about ourselves as a nation, about some of our past and current practices. I showed my students a videotape yesterday of a man who was a paraplegic who was treated in a way that no one should be treated. All these stories are interrelated. It's very easy for our hearts to go out for precious, innocent girls who are at church worshiping. But we have to see that same innocence and black men, women, children, people of all ages, of all racial and social backgrounds. And until we reach that point of truth, we're gonna keep circling the wagon. And I think as a nation, we're not quite there yet. I don't know what it's gonna take for us to, to get there. I think that books like this certainly offer an entree to have these discussions. We definitely have to link the past to the present. Coming up on The Janice Adams Show, It's the story known as The Four Little Girls. At 10 a.m. on September 15, 1963, children were in the basement ladies' room of Birmingham 16th Street Baptist Church, excitedly preparing for their annual Youth Day service. 20 minutes later, a truck driver known to the local clan as Dynamite Bob bombed the church, killing four girls, Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, Cynthia Wesley, and Addie Mae Collins, and wounding a fifth girl, Sarah Collins, then 12 years old. With us on the Janice Adams Show today is the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing's fifth little girl, the sole survivor, Sarah Collins Rudolph. Tell us about that day. September 15, 1963, we was going to have a youth day program at the church. And we were so excited. Uh, it was my sister, Janet, Ed, and, and I. We walked to church that Sunday morning, and we were just playing all the way to church. So we, when we arrived, we went into the uh, basement to uh, freshen up. And uh, while we was in the basement, Janet, she went upstairs to her class. And um, Ed and I stayed in the latest lounge. And while we was in the latest lounge, I began to look out the door. And all of a sudden, I seen our class turn out. Denise McNeil, Cynthia Wesley, and Carol Robson, they came into the latest lounge. And they spoke to us and went on to uh, go to the shop, use the stall. So when they came out, Denise was in front of the, the girls and she walked over to Adam and asked Adam to tie the sash on her dress. And when she reached out to tie the sash, that's when I heard this loud noise, boom. And all I could do is say, Jesus, Adam, 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 but she didn't answer. So I heard someone outside holler, somebody bombed the 16th Street Church. And uh, they both were so clear. And I found out who that person was. He was one of the deacons upstairs. He said when he had heard the noise, he came down to take the, to take the steps. And he looked down, but the steps was blown away. So he came inside and uh, he picked me up and he carried me out where, where, uh, out the hole that the bomb put into the church. And, I, and they put me in the ambulance. For those who don't know, this historic 16th Street bombing was not the only attack that happened that day. It was not the only violence perpetrated that day against Blacks in Birmingham. In that killing season of 1963, the depravity of the violence struck heart and home across the board. Birmingham police murdered a black boy in the street with a shotgun blast to the back. And on that same merciless Birmingham Sunday, a 13-year-old black boy riding a bicycle was killed by a white mob. With no room for pretense or political pandering, President John F. Kennedy appeared on television that night. That's how I remember that day. 
He called for an end to the violence that had been out of control for centuries, but never before so out in the open, available for instant judgment of television and still cameras. He decried the violence that would, within two months, take his life as well. For once, Kennedy seemed personally involved as he actually took sides in defense of conscience over political expedience. It was a national milestone then and something that has been forgotten in strange ways now. With us also on the show today is Tracy Snipe. He is the co-author of Sarah Collins Rudolph's book, The Fifth Little Girl, Sole Survivor, of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. And that sole survivor, they spell not S-O-L-E, but S-O-U-L, survivor. Tracy Snipe, what is your first knowledge of that day? Well, I was young, um, but over the course of time, Spike Lee's film, Four Little Girls, was quite instrumental in terms of taking that story to um, other generations of um, viewers and listeners, right? And that's why I asked the question that way. I didn't think you had been conscious of it at that point, but the fact that you were the co-author of this book speaks directly to how even people who were not conscious of it, how it has still resonated. Yes. I will tell you one event that did cause this um, bombing to resonate for me was when the terrorists flew planes into the, the Twin Towers. And that moment, although a lot of the press coverage was pertaining um, to the destruction of New York City, the destruction of the Pentagon, um, for some reason, my mind went back to what happened in Birmingham in um, 1963. And I think from that moment on, I really began to really um, this idea of uh, people bombing a church for um, terroristic purposes really began to resonate with me. Granted, I had seen the, the documentary several years earlier, and um, but 2001 was certainly a time when I began to think. And if you look at the, the structure of the, the 16th Street Baptist Church, although it's it's much smaller than the, the World Trade Center, it, it, it almost has a twin tower-like significance to it. It's just something about that event that made me really begin to think about episodes in Black history. I think it's also an interesting contrast that you make, or the fact that you are calling up that event, because we're going to talk with Sarah Collins Rudolph more about her experiences since. But the thing that strikes me is that this country does not, it will do the reparations and restitution if someone else did it, but it does not do the restitution and reparations if the U.S did it. And that is a pattern that we can see. Obviously, Native Americans, would people be really calling for reparations for slavery if we had not had segregation and Jim Crow that followed it, that really still calls for reparations to living people? Obviously, the Japanese people. There is the one rare case where some reparations were provided to the descendants of the people who were interred during World War II. But Sarah Collins, when you think of this, you know, it happened that day, September 15th, 1963. But what really happened to you? For one thing, they took away my childhood because I had to make so many adjustments to the way I live. Like when I lost my eye, I was just 12 years old. So essentially, as a result of the bombing, yes, you were the sole survivor, but you were not unharmed, physically unharmed. You lost your eye, didn't you? You spent almost two months in, in a hospital? Yes, because uh, both of my eyes were damaged. But uh, I remember when the doctor took the patches off my left eye, only thing I could see then was a little light. 
And uh, the doctor told me that since I was young, I will regain sight in, in my left eye. So I did, but right now, I still have trouble with my left eye. My, my, my uh, sight is gradually getting worse and worse because I still have a piece of glass in my left eye. And the doctor don't want to um, remove the glass because if he said that if anything go wrong, I would, you know, just would go blind. So he said when it, if it ever give, start giving me any trouble, that's when they will remove it. And your right eye is a prosthetic eye. Yes, it's a prosthetic. When you say they took away your childhood, so that part of your childhood was absorbed by trying to heal from the physical wounds and obviously the emotional wounds of having lost your sister. What was your childhood like before the 16th Street bombing? Before the bombing, I was I was having a, a lot of fun, you know, and, and enjoying my sister, and we was having so much fun. But after that happened, everything uh, uh, just really uh, stopped because uh, I had to start getting adjusted to uh, seeing out of one eye, and I had so much of trauma. I was never the same anymore. When I would hear loud sounds, I would jump all the time, and everything changed and I, I just really miss my sister because we were real close and she when she was killed and she wasn't there anymore more you know it just took a lot away you know a lot from me tell us about your family your mother your father did you have other siblings yes well my mother had uh six girls and, and two boys and uh my family, you know, were we, you we, all we in was church close. that day, or just you and Addie? Addie and I was close, but my sister Joanie and Janie, their class was upstairs. They suffered from a little trauma, but it wasn't like Addie and I because we was right there where they placed the bomb. And were your other siblings injured that day? Joanie, she she did a lot of uh, mental suffering, but uh. She changed because of, of the fact that she had to identify my sister remains. And I think ever since that day, she had some trauma. Mm -hmm. And how old was she when she had to identify her 14-year-old sister? I think Jenny was about 17. How did your family, as a family, come through that? What was it like? I mean, we are talking about... Birmingham at the height of segregation. We're talking about a Birmingham that was so egregiously violent that even before that it was known as Bombingham um, and nobody did anything about it. We're talking about a Birmingham where Governor George Wallace had just proclaimed segregation now, segregation forever. So what was life like for you as an African-American family at that point? Well, uh, it was kind of uh, something that we had to really uh, get adjusted to because uh, when we was living in, in the city of Birmingham, we know that things wasn't like it should have been because uh, Blacks had to go into the theaters and we had to uh, watch the movie from the balcony. We couldn't go downstairs where the whites sit. And also, uh, I remember how my mother, when she went shopping, she had to uh, put our feet on a piece of paper and mark it off with our size because they wouldn't let Blacks then try on the shoes. And it was just uh, something that we just, by growing up that way, we just really just had to live that way, you know, uh, separate from the whites. And we, our school, we had a white school in our neighborhood, we can just practically just go up, go up the hill and and uh, go to that school. But it was a white school, and they wouldn't let us uh, go to that school. So, how far away was your school? It was about seven blocks away. That week, your schools were supposed to desegregate. Yes. Uh, and it is said that the 
anger about school desegregation contributed to the violence. But I find it ironic to refer to something like that contributing to the violence as opposed to the violence of 1619 and, you know, raping a continent and, and forcing people to this country in ships. So the violence was very much ongoing. Beyond the indignities of segregation, Jim Crow segregation, had you experienced any other violence prior to September 15th? No, just little small things, like uh, when whites uh, passed by in their car, how they would throw things out there, windows at us, things like that, but, uh, and how they would call us, the white kids would c c get behind our backs and call us certain names. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that was about all. Well, it, it is so interesting that you would phrase it that way as small things, because obviously if these things were happening to white people, they would not be called small things at all. Um, yeah. And that is why we are telling this story. When we come back here on the Janice Adams Show, more with our guest, Sarah Collins Rudolph, the fifth little girl of the Birmingham 16th Street Baptist Church bombing and her co-author of her memoir, Tracy Snipe. More after the break. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with our guests, Sarah Collins Rudolph. She is the fifth little girl, sole survivor of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing of 1963, and her co-author of her memoir, The Fifth Little Girl, Tracy Snipe. Tracy Snipe, we've been speaking to Sarah Rudolph um, in the last segment about her life before all of this happened, when it happened. What are your reflections of the story that she's telling, and why did you want to do this book? Yeah, I think it's I think it's an amazingly powerful and inspirational story. And just to get back to where Sarah was saying a few minutes ago, when she uh, basically talked about incidents that happened as she was growing up, in the chapter entitled uh, Alabama, I recount some of the early events in, in Sarah's childhood, including the time that um, she and Addie had to run for their lives because white men threw trash at them. And you, know, you don't know where that could have led in terms of white men chasing younger it's, black girls at a time like this. So it was a, a life filled with turmoil and, and turbulence. Um, I, I give much credit though to Sarah's mother, Mrs. Allen Collins Rudolph, who was very much a pioneering figure in her own way, in the sense that she wanted her daughters to really fight against um, systems of racial injustice, prejudice. When Sarah and her siblings were much younger, for example, she and some of the leaders of the community organized a protest against Kroger's because they weren't hiring Blacks and because of this discriminatory practices at the time. So getting to know her story was, has just been an amazing um, turn of events for me. I first conscientiously began to really study the bombing back in, I think it was 2004. I was moved to travel to Birmingham, Alabama, because I'm also a dancer, classical dancer by, by training background. So I wanted to choreograph a dance based on John Coltrane's composition, Alabama, which he dedicated to the bombing of the church and the four little girls. So I initially sought to just interview victims of and people who were impacted by the bombing. And it was Sarah's sister, Junie, who actually put me in touch with Sarah. And from there, a very close uh, personal and professional relationship evolved. And at one point, Sarah asked me to, to write her book um, with her. And so that's how this wonderful um, relationship has evolved. Granted, uh, unfortunately, it was this terrible, tragic event that, 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 um, that brought us together. Um, in some ways, she, I think, has moved so many miles in terms of um, dealing with this. But as you said earlier, this whole question of restitution is not something to be taken lightly. I think that's the next chapter to the story. Until the state of Alabama, um, um, United States of America finds a, a, a way to, to adequately compensate Sarah and other victims to including her siblings, this story, this chapter remains unfinished as far as I'm concerned. 
Recently, Mrs. Rudolph, you have, with your attorneys, approached the state of Alabama about a formal apology and about restitution. I know that the governor did make an apology, but I have not heard anything about restitution as yet. Where is that part of it? Well, I don't uh, really call it an apology because it was something done through the media. She didn't uh, invite me to the office to apologize. So she just said that she apologized and it was just in uh, in a letter sent to my attorney. And uh, restitution, I am still working on that. It hadn't gone any, any further yet. I'm so glad you made that distinction because having read it in the press, I assumed that she had done the right and decent thing. And I didn't realize that she had not treated you just as a person who had been harmed. Right. Because I would rather have had an apology in her office or something like that, but it wasn't done that way. So it was done to make a statement to the public saying everything's okay and we're good. That raises the issue then straight and front. What do you feel America owes you for what was done, not just by Dynamite Bob or just by the Klan, but by the environment in which you were forced to live, which was therefore sanctioned by the state. I really feel that they owe me a a lot because of the fact that the police, the governor, and the bound department, all of them were involved in, you know, in that racist Jim Crow time. So if they had tried to stop all that, the hate that was going on, then I really believe that they wouldn't have bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church. So they owe me. They really owe me a lot because we was young and we wanted to go in church and praise God. But whites, they just hate. They hated us for no reason at all. That climate of hatred clearly is back with us full force now. So when you look at just the climate of what is happening today, and you think about what you've been through. How do you see all of this? Well, I really see that look like they're going back to that time. I say this because they're trying to take our voting rights and so much racism has showed its head again. And uh, it's time for, for people to unite together. They call this the United States, but we are not united. We are still trying to get our rights because they owe us our rights because we are human beings. But yet we have people in uh, Congress now that want, want to take us back to that time. But, you know, people have died for those rights. People was injured for our rights to vote. But yet they want to take all this away from us and, and it's not right. All over again. Tracy, what are you thinking? Well, I'm still reflecting on what Sarah stated about the involvement of the various officials from the proclamation that that Governor Wallace made several days before the bombing, that that perhaps the nation was ready for a few first-class funerals. I'm thinking about the fact that, according to some studies and reports, as much as a third of the Birmingham police force were either in the Klan or Klan-affiliated or Klan-related. And I'm also thinking about the extremely important point that Mrs. Collins just raised about where we are today in terms of voting rights legislation. We've not passed uh, acts invoking Congressman Jones Lewis. We recently had the example of George Floyd, who was brutally killed, and, but yet there's no legislation addressing those issues. There's a lot to be done. Uh, on the other hand, I am feeling somewhat positive by what I have witnessed firsthand as an instructor at college. I'm very much um, impressed by the energy and the dynamism that young people are once again bringing to these issues and to the movement itself. For example, I'm actually teaching Sarah's book on a course that I'm instructing called Black Women in Politics. Uh, And the students 
this book has really resonated with them to the extent that they're thinking about starting a reading group based on it, uh, starting a social blog based on it. So I find some degree of um, hope and the energy that younger people are bringing to these questions of social justice, um, uh, voting rights legislation. On the other hand, I think it's so tremendously important for people like Mrs. Collins Rudolph to speak up, to share um, their stories because she is the embodiment of a living civil rights legend in our midst. And that's an amazing opportunity for us to have, to have stories like hers and her sister, Judy Collins Williams, um, I'm currently working on the manuscript about her sister's life too. And that book is called Saving the Best Wine for Last, Remembrances of the 16th Street Baptist Church Bombing. But these stories are so important to share, especially um, as we approach the 60th anniversary of the bombing. And as we also reflect on events like the unfortunate massacre at Mother Emmanuel, Jewish synagogues and other um, places of worship in the country and around the world. Tracy, you are co-author of the memoir, The Fifth Little Girl, Sole Survivor of the 16th Street Baptist Church Bombing, The Sarah Collins Rudolph Story. Would you like to read something from the book? Yes, I'd like to read chapter 22 of the book for her ladyship. In this chapter, I really talk about how this bombing impacted not just Sarah, but other immediate members of her family, because I I believe you you posed that question to her earlier. I have a quote at the beginning of the chapters from Anna Julia Cooper, and it reads, I am my sister's keeper. The years between the blast and the trials led to a time of irresolution for myself and other siblings like Addie B, whom I've never discussed publicly. To say that Ad B, her nickname had a rough way to go is pinning things mildly. Tenderhearted like her namesake, things began to pass my elder sister by in the prime of life. Over time, she became like one of the lonely people. It's not hard for me to imagine slipping to that state. Still, I was able to keep it together as the fifth little girl and into adulthood. Addie B will always hold a special place in my heart. As a little girl, I admired her. She was gorgeous and had big dreams. Uh, But life has a way of deferring American dreams but we don't give up on them despite the painful past. Addie B attended the 16th Street Church as a young adult. In fact, she was there on the day that the four little girls were murdered. No one can find or locate her for hours on end. As a young adult, Addie B moved to New York, yet beauty offers no passport. How do we really begin to count all the 16th Street Baptist Church victims and folks still suffering from trauma? They range from members of my family quite possibly to others who left Alabama, not to mention the fearful child in me who sat in the 16th Street church like a zombie, still in a trance, months after the bombing. In September of 2003, our dear cousin Roy, who was from North Carolina and other relatives on my dad's side of the family came down south to Birmingham, Alabama on a chartered bus. My relatives wanted to visit the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. Addie B and I went with them for the visit as I had brought her home for that weekend to meet people. When they began to get off the bus to go inside the family, Eddie B said that she was tired. She didn't want to go inside, preferring to sit on the bus instead. So I told them that I would sit inside the bus along with my sister. I'd already seen practically everything in the museum. Besides, I didn't want my sister to sit alone. Since the 16th Baptist Church is directly across from the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute, when Eddie B asked to go to the restroom, we walked over to the church. Just as we were about to descend the stairs. Eddie B. hollered, I don't want to go down there. Death's down there, she rambled on. She was still terrified. Eddie B. refused to move an inch. I declare, it nearly broke me down on the spot. For years, I had lived her anxieties about the 16th Street Church bombing. Deep down, I knew how she felt. But for the twins' grace and mercy, I too could be treading a thin line between madness and reality. When I look back on the past, maybe the greatest victory and the key to survival lies in letting go, releasing the pain. That's the story of Sarah's eldest sister, Addie B, who for a while was confused with Addie Mae. Both sisters share the same first name. You speak about the legacies of events like this. I was in New York and my childhood was scarred by it, not because I was there, but because these things happened. It 
our consciousness was awakened as little children with what happened to Emmett Till. And then we have other incidents that happen. And then we have the 16th Street church bombing. And we begin, even though we're not there, we are there because we identify with our peers who are there. And so our childhoods are constantly marred with, will it happen to us? Could this happen to us? Could this happen to friends of ours? And it's a lifelong scar. And I'm speaking from 1,500 miles away. But I'm not speaking from 1,500 miles away because I'm speaking from the United States and this is an American disease, this constant racism. Tracy, as a young man growing up, how did you then begin to identify with this whole class of stories that come out of the American experience? Um, unfortunately, these stories are not taught to high school and even elementary school students, right? That's why I'm making such a great push to bring stories like this into the classroom. Because I think it's really important to think about the bombing, not within the context of just America, but how it went on to impact other parts of the world. For example, I'm an Africanist by training. And one of the things that uh, sparked my attention to the story was the impact that it had in places like South Africa, where you had the student rebellion based on the refusal of young Black South African students to learn the Afrikaans language. But it was still the same drive, this movement, this energy from the children that um, led to greater social justice, calls for social justice, social revolutions. I remember being a student at Syracuse and going to um, demonstrations against apartheid activities in South Africa. So I guess during all that period, I was beginning to sort of form a consciousness about these very important issues, right? When we think about that movement, uh, obviously without the energy that the young people bring to it, it would be a different kind of movement. I also like the fact that women in particular seen more as the forerunners of that movement because unfortunately with the civil rights movement, we oftentimes have not given women, especially black women, the credit and the due that they deserve. Um, the Claudette Colvins, the, the Sarah Collins Rudolphs, they should be at the forefront of our stories on black history that we should be instructing to students, especially since they're with us here and now. It's always easy to admire the icons of the past. Sarah's here now, and her story is still not yet finished and completed. And I think Sarah brings a different reality to that story. It reminds us that we still have unfinished business to address in this nation. And until we find a better way to um, deal with the restitution issue, that's the unfinished chapter here. When we come back here on The Janice Adams Show, more with our guests, Sarah Collins Rudolph. She is the fifth little girl of the 16th Street Birmingham bombing and the co-author of her memoir, Tracy Snipe. More after the break. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with my guests, Tracy Snipe. He is the co-author of the book, The Fifth Little Girl, the story of the 16th Street bombing, the soul survivor, S-O-U-L, as well as S-O-L-E, of the children who were at the epicenter of the bomb set off at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham and Sarah Collins Rudolph, who is the fifth little girl. And we are so grateful to have her with us today. The question is always, okay, we now have a sense of the story. We have a sense of the past. We have a sense of how it links to our present day, but where do we go from here? Sarah Collins Rudolph, where do we go from here? Yes, uh, I got up this morning and I had a scripture, I mean, say, uh, a segment in the book that I wanted to, to read, but it looked like God sent me another way. 
you know, the world is going through something right now. People are dying uh, with this COVID. And uh, racism has really shown its face again. And like I said earlier, they're trying to take away our voting rights. And uh, I remember uh, when I was going through the trauma that I had, I went to the drugs and I went to the alcohol. But one thing I didn't do, I didn't go to God. So this is why this book is so important to me. And God really bought me from a mighty long way. We got to go back to God. We got to get saved. We got to repent and, and, and ask God for forgiveness as we want to make it in. I can appreciate that. And I'm glad you shared that with us. But I do have to ask you, so many people right now, especially in this country, I'm going to speak about the United States because when we talk about these things, we want to kind of deflect sometimes to other people in other places. But in this country, we are going through things where in the name of religion, horrific things are being done, people doing to one another. How do you deal with that? How do you speak to that issue of what is done in the name of religion. You know, the Ku Klux Klan was a Christian organization that did that bombing. Well, uh, they say it's a Christian organization, but they're not a Christian organization because God is about love. God is about uh, us being united together. And uh, the Ku Klux Klan at that time, they was about evil. And they were on the side of the devil because uh, the devil don't want us to get together. The, the devil don't want us to love one another. And the devil, the one that told them to put the bomb under the church. So how can they be a religious group? In the few minutes that we have left, you've mentioned what's happening in terms of voting rights. Tracy, you've mentioned what's happened in terms of the George Floyd policing issues. Where do you see the need right now being for the takeaway from the story of the 16th Street Baptist Church and the fifth little girl, the takeaway from your story and what we need to do in terms of making sure that this kind of thing doesn't continue happening? Tracy? Yeah, we have to reach deeper. We have to go to the soil, right? And it's not really a, a pleasant, always a present process. We have to face a lot of unpleasant truths about ourselves as a nation, about some of our past and current practices. I live in Dayton, Ohio, where I showed my students a videotape yesterday of a um, man who was a paraplegic who was treated in a way that no one should be treated by an officer of the law, right? All these stories are interrelated. It's very easy to, for our hearts to go out to four precious innocent girls who were at church worshiping. But we have to see that same innocence in Black men, women, children, people of all ages, of all racial and social backgrounds. And until we reach that point of truth, we're going to keep circling the wagon. And I think as a nation, I don't think we're, we're not quite there yet. I don't know what it's going to take for us to, to get there. I think that books like this certainly offer a kind of um, an entree to have these discussions. We definitely have to link the past to the present. Uh, in Sarah's book, I evoke the, the concept of Sankofa, that is this notion of returning back to the past in order to move forward. We got to do both things, but we have to do it honestly. We have to be at a place of reckoning. Um, I want to say that John Coltrane's whole philosophy of life, uh, religion, the way that he invoked music to try to bring people together. For those who don't know, tell us, very briefly, who John Coltrane was. Yeah, John Coltrane was probably one of the most esteemed jazz saxophonists of our era. Uh, he did some amazing works. Perhaps his best known work is A Love Supreme. Uh, he also um, composed a song honoring the victims of the bombing. I was very much inspired by his music, and I use his music as a way of telling Sarah's story. Practically all of the chapters in the book are based on songs that he either composed and are worked with other musicians like uh, Miles Davis, for example, um, uh, Max Roach, John Coltrane, 
Abby Lincoln, Anita Simone, so many figures have made such a tremendous difference to the way that we were interpreting civil rights. And even today, when we look at um, John Legend, Common, whom Sarah had the chance to meet with, a lot of artists today are are speaking up. And um, in the epilogue to this book, I really talk about how artists have used this platform to discuss two tremendous tragedies in our nation. That is the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church and the massacre that occurred at Mother Emanuel in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm a native of Charleston, South Carolina. And Mrs. Blondell Gadsden, who was one of the sisters of the Emanuel Nine victims, writes the afterwards to Sarah's story. So at one point, I was able to bring the families of Mother Emanuel Nine to meet some of the families of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. And that was without a doubt one of the most powerful events that I think I've been a part of. That 16th Street bombing resonates with me in a different way because I was asked to do the commentary for CBS on the memorial service for which President Obama did the eulogy. Giving all praise and honor to God. To the families of the fallen, the nation shares in your grief. Our pain cuts that much deeper because it happened in a church. The church is and always has been the center of African American life. A place to call our own in a too often hostile world. A sanctuary from so many hardships. Amen. Over the course of centuries, black churches served as hush harbors where slaves could worship in safety. Praise houses where their free descendants could gather and shout hallelujah. Rest stops for the weary along the Underground Railroad. Bunkers for the foot soldiers of the Civil Rights Movement. They have been and continue to be community centers where we organize for jobs and justice. Places of scholarship and network. Places where children are loved and fed and kept out of harm's way and told that they are beautiful and smart and taught that they matter. That's what happens in church. That's what the black church means. Our beating heart. The place where our dignity as a people is inviolate. There's no better example of this tradition than Mother Emanuel. A church a church built by blacks seeking liberty, burned to the ground because its founders sought to end slavery, only to rise up again, a phoenix from these ashes. When there were laws banning all black church gatherings, mm -hmm. services happened here anyway in defiance of unjust laws. When there was a righteous movement to dismantle Jim Crow, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preached from its pulpit and marches began from its steps. A sacred place, this church. Not just for blacks. Not just for Christians, but for every American who cares about the steady expansion of human rights and human dignity in this country. A foundation stone for liberty and justice for all. That's what the church meant. Tomorrow, if our listeners walk out their door and say, I'm going to do one thing today that contributes 
to making sure the 16th Street church bombing does not happen and the legacies of it stop. What is the one thing that each of you would want that person to do? Tracy, I'll begin with you and then we'll close with the fifth little girl, Sarah Collins Rudolph. Tracy? I would say teach the word, <laughs> teach the word. And I think uh, the word is what to Sarah alluded to earlier and also instructing students. Students are hungry for this knowledge, right? Um, people of all ages, colors, racial backgrounds, uh, religious persuasions, um, I, I, acknowledgement, acknowledgement. You've got to acknowledge the past. After George Floyd, we talked about reckoning, racial reckoning. We're not talking about reckoning anymore. It's only been a year. How did that, how did that conversation just dissolve <laughs> when the problems didn't dissolve? And we got to get to a place of honesty. Sarah Collins Rudolph, what do you want us to do tomorrow? Get united and stop looking at color all the time. You know, it's time for us to unite and just treat each other like human beings because uh, God made us in his image. And it's time for us to get together and start loving one another and, and stop hating on each other and and, and uh, take, take away all this jealousy and and also, I pray for Biden, but Biden is trying to do right about us, you know, but we have people out there that want to continue to see us down. That's why I wish this whole nation just get together and be united in love. When you met with President Biden, what did you tell him and what did he say to you? Well, uh, I, we just spoke and we just had a few uh, words in private, so... Uh, it wasn't something that I would want to tell the media right now, you know. Mm -hmm. But he's very, he's very honest, and he's very, he's a very humble person, and he wants to see people progress, you know, and have a, a good life. So, uh, but people uh, are fighting against that. They want us to continue to be down and. And, and fight among the races, but it's time for us to uh, come out of that and stop hating one another. As a person, we know that he definitely has experienced loss and tragedy, and so one would expect him to greet you with compassion. That has been one of his signatures, and, and I gather he did. Um, yeah. And for that, we're grateful because in doing so, he represented us. We thank you, grateful for you, grateful for the life you have been determined to make for yourself, no matter what, and really thankful that you've written this wonderful book and that you brought Tracy Snipe in on it. And I thank you for being our guests today, Sarah Collins Rudolph, the fifth little girl, and Tracy Snipe, Professor and her co-author. Thank you both for being on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. My thanks to Sarah Collins Rudolph, to Dr. Tracy Snipe, co-authors of her memoir, The Fifth Little Girl, and to you for joining us on the Janice Adams Show today. For the podcast, links to the book, The 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, to Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, to President Obama's eulogy for the fallen, and more, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. We go out today on Alabama, composed and performed by John Coltrane in memoriam for the tragic events at the 16th Street Baptist Church. This recording was performed live at New York's historic Birdland Jazz Club on October 18, 1963, one month after the bombing. In cooperation with Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved.
Thank <laughs> you. 